0: Okay, well let's open up our Bibles to John uh, chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are coming up and down the aisle with copies of God's Word. And if you don't own a Bible, this is our gift uh, to you. Uh, Some of you saw on your way in the door today a sign that said, you know, glad you made it. And our service times have been pushed back to 1115. We just want to be clear that it's pushed back to 1115 only today. Okay, we saw some people celebrating out in the foyer, being like, oh, I get to sleep in from now on. No, that's not the case, you know. Whenever you, whenever you put up a sign, you want to you wanna be really careful what you're communicating, like the sign we put on the door today. You don't want to make, you know, some, some, some of the mistakes that you can, you can see on other signs. Like, here's a sign that went on the door of, a, of another building. Anyone caught exiting through this door will be asked to leave. Uh, or this this next one, uh, touching wires causes instant death two hundred dollar fine or some some signs don't have words at all, but the the image that it evokes i mean shouldn't there be like a circle with a big red line through that i, I don't I don't really know what that sign is saying, and sometimes you can you can communicate the wrong thing in your sign here's a sign a a, a hospital talking about their they progressive brain surgery that they're able to perform. But but look at the look at the person giving the testimonial. If, if, if you want to get something right about a brain surgery thing, you want to make sure that their head is still intact when they're when they're on uh, the billboard. And and then of course we see signs in stores and that sort of thing. And you know, the answer to that signs problem is 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 within within reach. You know, signs. A sign, send a message. And uh, today in John chapter 2, Jesus is going to do something. He's going to perform a miracle. And John is going to call it a sign. A, a signal that Jesus is sending. And he's uh, communicating something very, very important. He's communicating that the, the days of Trusting in religious ceremonial tradition and purification is now giving way to, to a supernatural transformation according to his power. That, that we should no longer try to clean ourselves up in order to work our way to God with, with rituals that we do on the outside. But that Christ was going to bring a transformation on the inside. Not according to human effort but according to miraculous Power. And so Christ is going to perform a powerful sign here in John chapter 2. We'll pick it up in verse 1. It says, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus told her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Believed in him. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, this is your word inspired by your spirit that John recorded to describe this amazing miracle that Jesus performed. And Lord, I pray that the, the spirit who gave the inspiration to, uh, to this text would now give all of us illumination. To not only understand the words, Lord, but to see our Savior And all of his beauty and all of his glory. I pray that as the disciples who saw this sign in response believed. Lord, I pray that we would hear with faith. And that we too would would believe all that you are and all that you have done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Jesus gives this signal, this sign in this incredible miracle. Transforming water into water. Wine. Here's, the, here's the first thing. If we're gonna understand this sign that Jesus is, is sending, not only to his disciples, but to us today, we're gonna need to understand this: that Jesus omnisciently works according to his timing. Jesus omnisciently works according to his timing. Verse one begins with this phrase, on the third day. And and If we look back into chapter 1, John has been recording really the first week of Jesus' ministry. Uh, John chapter 1 verse 19 started with John the Baptist and this delegation that was sent to interrogate him. But then in John chapter 1 verse 29 it says the next day and, and that's when John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then down at verse 35, it said, The next day. And that's when Andrew and an anonymous disciple start following him. And then Peter is introduced to Jesus. And then the next day, in verse 43, Philip introduces him to Nathanael. And now, in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, The third day. Which is, you know, three days after Philip and Nathanael's day. So day 5 we're not told what happens the day in between. But we're... We're invited into this initial week in Jesus' life. Now, just think back about what John has been doing. Remember how, the, remember how the Gospel of John begins in chapter 1, verse 1? In the beginning. A reference to Genesis. Then he talks about light in the darkness. Another reference to Genesis. And then what do we have? We have six days. How does Genesis begin? Begins with six days, and then what happens on the sixth day? God creates a man, and the man's it's not good for him to be alone, so he creates a bride for the the man. And then what happens on the sixth day? There's a wedding. And so here we have in the beginning six days and a wedding. John, very subtly but beautifully, is drawing a parallel between the creation in Genesis 1 and the new creation that Jesus. Came uh, to bring not only for his people but for uh, the whole world. So it's on this third day that Jesus is invited to a wedding. God loves weddings. He designed the the, the whole thing. He he orchestrated Adam and Eve's marriage. And, and here's Christ about to perform his first miracle in the context of a wedding. If you have the privilege of being married, remember that it is a privilege, that it is a gift from God, part of, of his creation and purpose for mankind. It's, it's a sacred moment and Jesus attends it. But at the, at the reception there's a crisis. Verse 3 it says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now this is the first time in, the, in John's gospel where we're introduced to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Normally, you know, in Matthew and Luke, we, we, we hear about Mary before we hear about Jesus. Because, because we're, we're told about his birth narrative. But now, John's taken a different approach to Christmas. And now we're introduced to Jesus' mother Mary, and there's a problem at the wedding, and Mary expresses that problem to, uh, to Jesus. She, she lets him know that they have no wine. Look at Jesus' response in verse 4. Jesus said to her, a woman... Okay, let's just stop right there for a second. Okay? This is not a WWJD moment. Uh, sons and daughters, young and old, children and grown-ups... There's almost zero reason why anyone should ever speak to their mother as woman. Now we've, we've, we've talked a bunch so far as we've been going through the Gospel of John. Is that here you have a Jesus who was raised Jewish. So he was fluent in Hebrew. But the everyday conversational language was Aramaic. And John is writing in Greek. And clearly... We can't assume that Jesus was just being brash or rude. Like, look, lady. In fact, in John 19, verse uh, 26 and 27, when Jesus is actually suffering and dying on the cross. And his mother is there at the foot of the cross with the disciple whom Jesus loved. And Jesus is trying to provide for his mother and trying to anticipate and think, who's going to look after her? He says, in John 19, 26, he says, woman, your son. And then he says to the disciple whom he loved, he says, your mother. I mean, could there be any more tender, emotionally charged, loving moments between a a, a son and his mother than when he's suffering and dying? So clearly the phrase woman is is not a, a, a rude a rude way of, of speaking. But then he says something really interesting. He says, what does, this, "What does this have to do with me?" And he says, "My hour has not come." So here, very early in John's gospel, he introduces this concept of Jesus having an hour. There is a particular time that this whole story is moving towards something. When will this hour be? This concept of hour actually forms the structure of the entire book. The first 12 chapters where we are right now, it's continually being said that Jesus' hour has not yet come. And then at the end of chapter 12, Jesus then says, my hour has come. And that's a turning point. And then from chapter 13 to 21 to the end of the book, the whole emphasis is about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. The hour that Christ is referring to is, is, is the purpose for which he came. To suffer and to die on the cross. You see, Jesus is working, he's omnisciently working according to his timing. He had a schedule laid out, and he knew that he would be at a, a wedding six days after going public. He 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 knew that he needed time to train up his disciples. He knew that he needed to to be rejected by the uh, by the religious leaders, and he didn't want to attract attention to himself too soon to speed up the process. He knew it all needed to happen at Passover. And he was working omnisciently according to his timing. Mary thought this would be a great time for him to show who he was. I mean, all our family and friends are here. It's a wedding. It's a time of celebration. Jesus, perform a miracle and, and just go public right now. Jesus says, no, no, no. My hour has not yet come. There's a number of times in, verse, in chapters 1 to 12 where people try to arrest Jesus, but they can't. And the only reason that John gives is because his hour hadn't come. Jesus was omnisciently working according to his timing. And maybe you want Jesus to do something. Maybe you're like Mary. You want Jesus to do something right here, right now. But God is always working according to his timing and according to his omniscience. So how does Mary respond? Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I I, kind of picture this, you know, like Mary's here in the middle. Jesus over here. She she told him about the wine. And Jesus says, my hour has not come. And then she looks at the servants as she's walking away. And she says, do whatever he tells you. (laughs) You know, Jesus, I know you're the omniscient son of God. But I'm your mother. (laughs) I think there's a lesson here, though. Mary brought a problem to Jesus. And then she just trusted him with it. She knows her son has the power to perform this kind of a miracle. She knows that her son loves her and loves everyone who's in, at the wedding. She knows that her son will do what is right and what is good. And so what does she do? What we should often do when we're trusting God on a timing issue is trust that he'll do the right thing. And she's trusting right now, even though I don't totally understand it, she's saying, you know what? I know, Jesus, you're going to do the right thing. So, and so she, she tells the servants, and she gives, she gives us really good advice. The, the advice that she gives the servants is some of the best advice you could ever receive. Do you see it there? Do whatever he tells you. Can I get an amen? Is that not what the Christian life is? Do whatever he tells you. Don't just do some of it. Do all of it. Do whatever he... This is the one who has the authority, who has the power... Do whatever he tells you. He omnisciently works according to his timing. Look at verse 6. It says Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. Again, when we think about God's timing, notice how Jesus doesn't give all the details. He only gives them step one. He just says, go fill those jars. And they're the, they're the jars for the Jewish rites of purification. They're, so they're thinking like, well, everyone already washed their hands. So why are, we, why are we, why am I doing this? How is water in jars going to help the wine problem? You want to send me to the next town, over to the vineyards? You want to send me to the wine press? press? Give me something practical to do to solve the wine problem. And so often God tells us to do things that seem counterintuitive. They seem backwards. We think, well, this is the answer. We've got to trust that he's working. He's omnisciently working according to his timing. And if we are going to be people who are going to do whatever he tells us, that means sometimes we're going to have to do some things that just logically don't make sense to us. But we have to trust. And that's what they had to do. And I love, I love the fullness of their, their obedience. They filled it up to the brim. Jesus wants it filled, I'm filling it. Jesus wants it done, I'm doing it. Not part way, all the way. It's a great example for us there. What, what has God told you to do? What is the first step? So often we want step 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. And we want to know that it's all going to work out. But that's not the way Jesus works. So often he just says, this is the next step. Sign up to serve in that ministry. Start that spiritual conversation with with that person. Well, I don't know if I sign up for the ministry. I don't know what's going to happen with my schedule. Just take the first step. Well, what if that person I start the spiritual conversation with, what if they ask me a question? I don't know the answer. Well, just take the first step. We'll deal with the second step when we need to deal with the second step. Are Are you taking that first step of obedience... In following him, trusting that he is working according to his timing. Secondly, make note of this, that he abundantly provides for his people. He abundantly provides for his people. So he has them fill up these stone water jars. And it says that they were for the the Jewish rites of purification. These jars... the Pharisees got into an argument with Jesus once over, over these jars in Mark uh, chapter 7. You can see it up here on the screen. Now when the Pharisees gathered uh, to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the, notice this to the tradition of the elders, Notice in John 2 it says the Jewish rites of purification. There's no mention about the Bible. There's no mention about the Old Testament or Moses or the law. This is a made-up rule. This is the tradition of men. And then it goes on. The Pharisees and the scribes said, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Not the Bible. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship as me. Notice this teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Those stone jars represented the commandments of men. He says, You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. That's what these stone jars were about. This ceremonial hand washing that's nowhere in the Bible, but that people were very strict about. Can't that happen so often in the church? That we add these additional rules of what it means to be a Christian. That's a dangerous place to be. And so that was happening at this wedding. And so they go and they're assuming maybe, everyone needs to, maybe the reason why the wine ran out is God is punishing us. Because we didn't follow the rule right. So maybe we need to wash our hands again. But then Jesus gives the second part of the instruction. So now they're filled to the brim. Verse 8. He said to them, now draw some water out and take it to the master of the feast. What? Does he need to wash his hands? Now this master of the feast was sort of like the caterer, the DJ, and the wedding planner all rolled into one. He would for sure have his own reality TV show on HGTV. The whole thing. And then when he he drinks it, it says, verse 9, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. So the miracle had taken place. And did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. It's very important to notice this. The servants don't say. Jesus said my hour has not come. He's doing this miracle incognito. It's only his disciples who, who are the ones who believed. Only the servants and the disciples knew what was going on. The master never knew. He calls out the, 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 the bridegroom... In verse 10, he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you, bridegroom, you have kept the good wine for the end. And the bridegroom's kind of like, Okay. You see, imagine like having a bunch of people over for dinner, and you know, you have sort of a buffet and you know, the first three or four people go through and they're heaping food onto their plates. And then there's like 15 or 20 other people and it's very clear that you're going to run out of food. And you invited these people to come and to, and to share a meal at your house. And the, the awkwardness in that, uh, in that moment... The embarrassment of that, the shame. Now, now multiply that, because everything in a wedding, you know, just gets amped up that much more, right? And, and then multiply that by the fact that this is happening in a, in a Middle Eastern context, an honor and shame culture. And isn't this incredible? The bridegroom, the one responsible for the wedding, the one who should feel the most ashamed in this moment is centered out, and rather than being shamed, is being celebrated. That is such a beautiful picture of the gospel, isn't it? When I, when I look at my life, things I've done, things I've said, things I've thought, I, I deserve to stand before a holy God, to stand before a world, and feel shame. But like the bridegroom, because of something that Jesus did, I am welcomed and celebrated. I'm not cast out and rejected. And this is exactly what the, what the bridegroom experiences here. Jesus abundantly provides for his people. He, he rescues this wedding celebration that was very quickly about to get off the rails. And notice how he does it. First of all, his method. He takes lifeless, legalistic, tradition, religion, rules, rituals, and he uses that. He uses those jars to hold wine for celebrating. Also notice the abundance of what he does. These jars, these stone jars, they're 20 to 30 Gallons. You, you, you can buy a 30-gallon barrel at Walmart. This is the photo from the WalMart website. I don't know how you get to be a model um, for a, a barrel model, but <laughs> But that's a 30-gallon that's a, that's a barrel. Now there are six of these barrels. Now, and they got 30 gallons in them. You can get about five of our, you know, today's wine bottles into one gallon. So, five five wine bottles in a gallon, and the jars have 30 gallons. So, each barrel, each jar, can hold about 100 to 150 bottles of wine. And then there's six of them. So, Jesus, in an instant, abundantly provided for his people somewhere between 600 and 900 bottles of wine. Listen, I've been to a lot of weddings. I've never seen upwards of a thousand bottles of wine being necessary. He abundantly provided. Cana is this small little podunk town. And just the overabundance of wine, so, so his the the abundance that he provides, and then the quality. Go back to, to the master of feast, the feast. He, 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 he can't believe that they're bringing out the good wine afterwards. You know, he takes the glass and he kind of holds it like this to, to look at the wine's tears or legs. And he, he smells its bouquet and its sort of earthy, oaky uh, elegance, you know. And, and then he drinks it and he notices the bold finish. And he marvels. Listen, it wasn't just wine. It was good wine. He abundantly provided for his people. Verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Jot this down thirdly. Jesus miraculously manifests his glory. He omnisciently works according to his timing. He abundantly provides for his people. And he miraculously manifests his glory. This was his, the first of his signs. So I already mentioned how this concept of Jesus hour Really lays out the structure for how the gospel of John unfolds. And now we're told about these signs. And the concept of signs is also really important to putting together the whole gospel of John. So in, here in John chapter 2 it says this is the first sign. And then at the end of John chapter 4, when they're back in Cana of Galilee, Jesus has healed a centurion's uh, uh, a son or servant. I can't remember. We'll get there in chapter 4. But at the end of that time, it says that this was the second sign. And so John's telling us, we gotta, there's, there's some signs, and we need to, we need to count them. But he doesn't, the next one, he doesn't say it's the third or the fourth. He says, you understand? We've got to start counting. He leaves it up to us as the readers now. We need to be counting the signs. Now a sign, the purpose of a sign is to point to something. What, what did this sign point to? We already talked about how it all happened in the context of a wedding. And there is a, there is a, a wedding in Genesis. And there is an ultimate wedding that is coming in the future in Revelation. But why the wine? Why did he use wine as his sign? Well, Remember at the end, or, at the end of uh, chapter 1, there was all of this talk about Jacob. You know, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, and Jacob means deceiver, and then the Son of Man being like Jacob's ladder, and the, the angels ascending and descending. Well, Jacob was a deceiver. And When he saw Jacob's ladder, when he saw heaven opened and this stairway to heaven, this way to God was opened up. He was running for his life and he was running to one of his relatives, Laban, who he thought he could trust. But it's so funny how so often in the providence of God what goes around comes around. Because Jacob was a deceiver and Laban multiple times ends up deceiving Jacob. Jacob ends up, by the time he leaves Laban, It's listen, trust me, it's complicated, but he ends up with two wives and children from four different mothers. And Jacob returns to the promised land, then only to have one of his sons sold into slavery without him knowing, again, the deceiver had been deceived by his own sons. But God was Sovereign over all of it. He was omnisciently working according to his timing. Because his son actually went to rescue the nation of Egypt. And all the surrounding world from famine. So Jacob and all of his sons end up moving to Egypt. And Jacob, the one who had stolen the blessing from his brother Esau. Then lays hands on each of his 12 sons. And he he pronounces a blessing on them. And this is what he says to his son Esau. Joseph. Sorry, Judah. He says this: the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Judah was not the firstborn, but in stating this blessing, Jacob was saying that Judah was going to be the, the, the preeminent one, that all of the sons we're going to look to him, but he was going to rule not just over the extended family, but he was going to rule over all the peoples. That a descendant from the line of Judah was going to rule and reign over the whole world. And then look at this, look at this odd comment. Oh, no, sorry, go back. Uh, Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. If you've got a donkey or, a, or a, a little horse and you want to tie it up somewhere, you don't tie it in the vineyard. You don't tie it to a vine. Why? Because the animal would eat all the grapes. And grapes are really hard to grow and really expensive. You want to feed your animal like hay and straw, all that sort of stuff. You, you don't want to feed your animal a huge waste of money unless you've got all kinds of grapes. And Jacob is pronouncing this blessing about Judah saying a ruler is coming from the line of Judah and he's going to bring such a season, such a season of abundance that people are going to tie their animal to grapevines. Eat all you want. We got plenty. They're they're going to to wash their garments in wine. I'm not sure how that really works as a stain remover. But it, it sounds ridiculous. That's the whole point. Is there's going to be so many grapes. There's going to be so much wine. That we're going to bathe in it. We're going to to feed our animals. The fruit of the vine. So Jacob pronounces this blessing in Egypt. 400 years go by. The family ends up growing into this massive nation. They're enslaved under the Egyptians. But then God miraculously sets them free. He parts the Red Sea. They go into the promised land in Numbers 13. Some spies are sent into the promised land. It says they came to the valley of Escol and cut down there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. How big should a cluster of grapes be? Pretend like you're holding up a cluster of grapes. Right? You can just hold it up in your hand. Notice this. A single cluster of grapes and they carried it on a pole between the two of them. So you got one grown man with a pole on his shoulder and another grown man with a pole on his shoulder. And they're carrying it and there's this massive single cluster of grapes. And so this anticipation of, it's all coming together now. God is is providing and soon the ruler from the line of Judah will be coming. Look at all of these grapes. But then what happens? The people don't even want to go into the promised land. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years and they uh, eventually get into the promised land and then there's David who's from the line of Judah. Maybe this is the guy. Maybe this is the abundance, the time that's going to come. But then David fails and Solomon, his son, fails and then it just gets worse and worse and worse until you get to the book of Isaiah which is full of just the traditions of men and stone water jars everywhere. And this is what This is what God says about Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter 24. He says, The wine mourns, the vine languishes, no more do they drink wine with singing. This promised land, this land that had these massive, there's no more wine. It's it's not about the wine, it's this lack of joy. It's this lack of abundance. It goes on to say, the wasted city, that's Jerusalem. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that no one can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. So Isaiah paints this awfully depressing picture. of of human society given over to life apart from God. And maybe, maybe this describes your life right now or maybe you can think back to when you first came to know Christ and the wine had run out and there was no joy and there was no gladness. And listen, we live in a world that is surrounded by people where the wine is out and there is no joy and there is no singing because there's no God in their life. And then the next chapter, Isaiah 25, Isaiah makes this prophecy. He says, On this mountain, the city of Jerusalem was on a mountain. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, not just for Israel, but he will make it for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well aged wine. Well aged wine that Jesus made in an instant. He didn't need time, he didn't even need grapes. Rich food and full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. Some of you remember that passage, God wiping away tears from all faces. That's in the book of Revelation. Isaiah chapter 25 is like the structure of the book of Revelation. It, 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 John is just leaning on Isaiah 25 as he's describing the new heavens and the new earth so what is this a sign pointing to why the wine Jesus is saying I am that descendant of Judah who has come to bring a season of abundance and he says my hour has not yet come but in this moment right here at this small little wedding in the middle of nowhere I am going to perform this miracle to show that one day my hour is going to come And one day I am going to lay out a feast for the whole world. You think this wine is good. There is an even better wine that is coming in the end. And that's why at the end of verse 11 it says that he manifested his glory. He manifested his glory. Let's go back to this idea of the hour. So Chapter 12, verse 23 is the turning point when his hour has come. Look at what 12, 23 actually says on the screen here. John 12, 23. Jesus answered them, the hour has come, but look what he says next, for the son of man to be glorified. You see, this this structure of John 12 or John 1 to 12 is you've got multiple signs. And then Jesus says, my hour has come, and he says, for me to be glorified. So he was glorified in all of those other signs, but then he says there's this ultimate sign. Now is the time for me to be glorified. The ultimate sign is Christ's death and burial on the cross. You see, wine is a metaphor for abundance, but there's a a bitterness to the wine imagery that goes along with the sweetness There's the imagery in the Bible of the winepress of God's wrath. There's the image of the Bible of drinking deep the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. Bearing the punishment for sin. And that's what Jesus did. That's when Jesus said, now's the time. My hour has come for me to be glorified. Where I am going to drink the wine of the wrath of God. The winepress of God's wrath. So that we can drink the wine of God's abundance. That we are the ones who deserve to be treated with shame. But when Christ's hour has come. He is treated with shame. So that we could be welcomed and celebrated. Like the unsuspecting bridegroom was at this wedding. And so in John 2 we see Jesus being invited to a wedding. And then you get to the end of the book of Revelation. Revelation 19. Now we are invited to Jesus' wedding. And we are invited To drink the wine of abundance. The wine of celebration. Because we don't don't please God with our effort or our rules or our rituals. We please God because God sent his son to shed his blood so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And so it's only fitting that we close our time together today by sharing in the Lord's Supper. I mean wine points to uh, Jesus uh, Jesus' blood being a shed for us. And so I'm going to ask us to bow our heads right now and we're going to pray for God's uh, hand uh, and presence to bless our time together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name and we pray that you would be with us as we seek to commune with you as we take these symbols in our hands, the the bread, Lord. John 1 says the word became flesh. We remember Lord Jesus your body and the wine, the the abundance, the, the celebration that that has been provided because Jesus, you bore the wrath of God for us. God, we love you and we thank you for this time of Somber reflection, Lord, where we mourn over our sin and what it costs, Lord, but where we also celebrate that that you have made a way for us to have our sins forgiven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.